Section twenty three of the Journals of Robert Falcon Scott, Volume One, by Robert Falcon Scott. This is a LibriVox recording. Section twenty three. Chapter eleven in Winter Quarters, Part two. Tuesday, June the thirteenth, a very beautiful day. We revelled in the calm, clear moonlight. The temperature has fallen to minus twenty-six degrees. The surface of the flow, perfect for ski, had a run to South Bay in forenoon, and was away on a long circuit around Inaccessible Island in the afternoon. In such weather the cold splendour of the scene is beyond description. Everything is satisfying, from the deep purple of the starry sky to the gleaming bergs and the sparkle of the crystals underfoot. Some very brilliant patches of aurora, over the southern shoulder of the mountain, observed an exceedingly bright meteor shoot across the sky to the northward. On my return found Debenham and Gran back from Cape Armitage. They had intended to start back on Sunday, but were prevented by bad weather. They seemed to have had stronger winds than we. On arrival at the hut they found poor little Mukaka coiled up outside the door, looking pitifully thin and weak, but with enough energy to bark at them. This dog was run over and dragged for a long way under the sledge-runners whilst we were landing stores in January the 7th. He has never been worth much since, but remained lively in spite of all the hardships of sledging work. At Hut Point he looked a miserable object, as the hair refused to grow in his hind-quarters. It seemed as though he could scarcely continue in such a condition, and when the party came back to Cape Evans he was allowed to run free alongside the sledge. On the arrival of the party I especially asked after the little animal, and was told by Dimitri that he had returned, but later it transpired that this was a mistake, that he had been missed on the journey, and had not turned up again later, as was supposed. I learned this fact only a few days ago, and had quite given up the hope of ever seeing the poor little beast again. It is extraordinary to realise that this poor, lame, half-clad animal has lived for a whole month by himself. He had blood on his mouth, when found implying the capture of a seal, but how he managed to kill it, and then get through its skin, is beyond comprehension. Hunger drives hard. Wednesday, June the 14th. Storms are giving us little rest. We found a thin stratus over the sky this morning, foreboding ill. The wind came, as usual, with a rush, just after lunch. At first there was much drift. Now the drift has gone, but the gusts run up to sixty-five miles per hour had a comfortless stroll around the hut. How rapidly things change when one thinks of the delights of yesterday. Paid a visit to Wright's ice-cave. The pendulum is installed and will soon be ready for observation. Wright anticipates the possibility of difficulty with ice-crystals on the agate plains. He tells me that he has seen some remarkably interesting examples of the growth of ice-crystals on the walls of the cave, and has observed the same unaccountable confusion of the size of grains in the ice showing how little history can be gathered from the structure of ice. This evening Nelson gave us his second biological lecture, starting with a brief reference to the scientific classification of the organism into kingdom, phylum, group, class, order, genus, species. He stated the justification of a biologist in such an expedition as being to determine the condition under which organic substances exist in the sea. He proceeded to draw divisions between the bottom organisms, without power of motion, benthon, the nekton-motile life in mid-water, and the plankton or floating life. 
Then he led very prettily on to the importance of the tiny vegetable organisms as the basis of all life. In the killer whale may be found a seal, in the seal a fish, in the fish a smaller fish, in the smaller fish a copepod, and in the copepod a diatom. If this be regular feeding throughout, the diatom, or vegetable, is essentially the base of all. Light is the essential of vegetable growth, or metabolism, and light quickly vanishes in depth of water, so that all ocean life must ultimately depend on the phytoplankton. To discover the conditions of this life is therefore to go to the root of matters. At this point came an interlude, descriptive of the various biological implements in use in the ship and on shore. The otter trawl, the agassiz trawl, the d-net, and the ordinary dredger. A word or two on the using of d-nets, and then explanation of sieves for classifying the bottom, its nature causing variation in the organisms living on it. From this he took us among the toe-nets with their beautiful silk fabrics, meshes running a hundred and eighty to the inch, and materials costing two guineas the yard. To the German toe-nets for quantitative measurements, the object of the latter and its doubtful accuracy, young fish trawls. From this to the chemical composition of sea-water, the total salt about 3.5 per cent, but variable. The proportions of the various salts do not appear to differ. Thus the chlorine test detects the salinity quantitatively. Physically, plankton life must depend on this salinity, and also on temperature, pressure, light, and movement. If plankton only inhabits surface waters, then density, temperatures, etc., of surface waters must be the important factors. Why should biologists strive for deeper layers? Why should not deep sea life be maintained by dead vegetable matter? Here again the lecturer branched off into descriptions of water bottles, deep-sea thermometers, and current meters, the which I think have already received some notice in his diary. To what depth light may extend is the difficult problem, and we had some speculation, especially in the debate on this question. Simpson suggested that laboratory experiment should easily determine. Atkinson suggested growth of bacteria on a scratched plate. The idea seems to be that vegetable life cannot exist without red rays, which probably do not extend beyond seven feet or so. Against this is an extraordinary recovery of Holosphera feridis by German expedition from two thousand fathoms. This seems to have been confirmed. Bowers caused much amusement by demanding to know if the pycnogs, pycnogonics, were more nearly related to the arachnids, spiders, or crustaceans. As a matter of fact, a very sensible question, but it caused amusement because of its sudden display of long names. Nelson is an exceedingly capable lecturer. He makes his subject very clear, and is never too technical. Thursday, June the 15th. Keen, cold wind. Overcast sky till 5.30pm. Spent an idle day. Jimmy Pig had an attack of colic in the stable this afternoon. He was taken out and doctored on the flow, which seemed to improve matters, but on return to the stable he was off his feed. This evening the soldier tells me he has eaten his food, so I hope all be well again. Friday, June the 16th. Overcast again. Little wind, but also little moonlight. Jimmy Pig quite recovered. Went round the bergs in the afternoon. A great deal of ice has fallen from the irregular ones, showing that a great deal of weathering of bergs goes on during the winter, and hence that the life of a berg is very limited, even if it remains in the high latitudes. Tonight Debenham lectured on volcanoes. His matter is very good, but his voice a little monotonous. 
so that there were signs of slumber in the audience, but all woke up for a warm and amusing discussion succeeding the lecture. The lecturer first showed a world chart showing the distribution of volcanoes, showing general tendency of eruptive explosions to occur in lines. After following these lines in other parts of the world, he showed difficulty of finding symmetrical linear distribution near Makurdo Sound. He pointed out, incidentally, the important inference which could be drawn from the discovery of altered sandstones in the Erebus region. He went to the shapes of volcanoes. The massive type, formed by very fluid lavas, Mauna Loa, Hawaii, Vesuvius, examples. The more perfect cones formed by Ash Talus, Fujiyama, discovery. The explosive type with parasitic cones, Erebus, Morning, Etna. Fisher eruption, historic only in Iceland, but best prehistoric examples, Deccan, India, and Oregon, U.S. There is small ground for supposing relation between adjacent volcanoes. Activity in one is rarely accompanied by activity in the other. It seems most likely that vent tubes are entirely separate. Products of volcanoes. The lecturer mentioned the escape of quantities of free hydrogen. There was some discussion on this point afterwards. That water is broken up is easily understood, but what becomes of the oxygen? Simpson suggested the presence of much oxidizable material. CO2 as a noxious gas, also mentioned and discussed, causes mythical upas tree. Sulphurous fumes attend final stages. Practically little or no heat escapes through the sides of a volcano. There was argument over physical conditions influencing explosions, especially as to barometric influence. There was a good deal of disjointed information on lavas, ropey or rapid flowing, and viscous, also on spatter cones and caverns. In all cases, lavas cool slowly. Heat has been found close to the surface after eighty-seven years. On Etna, there is lava over ice. The lecturer finally reviewed the volcanicity of our own neighbourhood. He described various vents of Erebus, thinks Castle Rock a plug, here some discussion, Observation Hill, part of old volcano, nothing in common with Crater Hill. Inaccessible island seems to have no connection with Erebus. Finally, we had a few words on the origin of volcanicity, and afterwards some discussion on an old point, the relation to the sea. Why are volcanoes close to the sea? Debenham thinks not cause and effect, but two effects resulting from the same cause. Great argument as to whether effect of barometric changes on Erebus vapour can be observed. Not much was said about the theory of volcanoes, but Debenham touched on American theories, the melting out from internal magma. There was nothing much to catch hold of throughout, but discussion of such a subject sorts one's ideas. Saturday, June the 17th. Northerly wind, temperature changeable, dropping to minus 16 degrees. Wind doubtful in the afternoon. Moon still obscured. It is very trying. Feeling dull in spirit today. Sunday, June the 18th. Another blizzard. The weather is distressing. It ought to settle down soon, but unfortunately the moon is passing. Held the usual morning service. Hymns not quite successful today. Tonight Atkinson has taken the usual monthly measurement. I don't think there has been much change. Monday, June the 19th. A pleasant change to find the air calm and the sky clear. Temperature down to minus 28 degrees. 
At one-thirty the moon vanished behind the western mountains, after which, in spite of the clear sky, it was very dark on the flow. Went out on ski across the bay, then round about the cape, and so home, facing a keen northerly wind on return. Atkinson is making a new fish-trap hole. From one cause and another, the breaking of the trap and the freezing of the hole, no catch has been made for some time. I don't think we shall get good catches during the dark season, but Atkinson's own requirements are small, and the fish, though nice enough, are not such a luxury as to be greatly missed from our menu. Our daily routine has possessed a settled regularity for a long time. Clissold is up about 7 a.m. to start the breakfast. At 7.30 Hooper starts sweeping the floor and setting the table. Between 8 and 8.30 the men are out and about, fetching ice for melting, etc., Anton is off to feed the ponies, Dmitri to see to the dogs. Hooper bursts on the slumberers with repeated announcements of the time, usually a quarter of an hour ahead of the clock. There is a stretching of limbs and an interchange of morning greetings, garnished with sleepy humour. Wilson and Bowers meet in a state of nature beside a washing-basin filled with snow and proceed to rub glistening limbs with this chilling substance. A little later, with less hardihood, some others may be seen making the most of a meagre allowance of water. Soon after eight-thirty, I manage to drag myself from a very comfortable bed and make my toilet with a bare pint of water. By about ten minutes to nine, my clothes are on. My bed is made, and I sit down to my bowl of porridge. Most of the others are gathered about the table by this time, but there are a few laggards who run the nine o'clock rule very close. The rule is instituted to prevent delay in the day's work and has needed a little pressure to keep one or two up to its observation. By nine-twenty breakfast is finished, and before the half-hour has struck the table has been cleared. From nine-thirty to one-thirty the men are steadily employed on a programme of preparation for sledging, which seems likely to occupy the greater part of the winter. The repair of sleeping-bags and the alteration of tents has already been done, but there are many other tasks, uncompleted or not yet begun such as the manufacture of provision-bags, crampons, sealskin soles, pony-clothes, etc. Hooper has another good sweep up the hut after breakfast, washes the mess-traps, and generally tidies things. I think it is a good thing that in these matters the officers need not wait on themselves. It gives long unbroken days of scientific work, and must therefore be an economy of brain in the long run. We meet for our midday meal at one thirty or one forty-five and spend a very cheerful half-hour over it. Afterwards the ponies are exercised, weather permitting. This employs all the men, and a few of the officers, for an hour or more. The rest of us generally take exercise in some form at the same time. After this the officers go on steadily with their work, whilst the men do odd jobs to while away the time. The evening meal, our dinner, comes at six-thirty, and is finished within the hour. Afterwards people read, write, or play games, or occasionally finish some piece of work. The gramophone is usually started by some kindly disposed person, and on three nights of the week the lectures to which I have referred are given. These lectures still command full audiences and lively discussions. At 11 p.m. the acetylene lights are put out, and those who wish to remain up or to read in bed must depend on candlelight. The majority of candles are extinguished by midnight, and the night watchman alone remains awake to keep his vigil by the light of an oil lamp. Day after day passes in this fashion. It is not a very active life, perhaps, but certainly not an idle one. Few of us sleep more than eight hours out of the twenty-four. 
On Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning some extra bathing takes place. Chins are shaven, and perhaps clean garments donned. Such signs, with the regular service on Sunday, mark the passage of the weeks. Tonight Day has given us a lecture on his motor-sledge. He seems very hopeful of success, but I fear is rather more sanguine in temperament than his sledge is reliable in action. I wish I could have more confidence in his preparations, as he is certainly a delightful companion. Tuesday, June the 20th. Last night the temperature fell to minus 36 degrees, the lowest we have had this year. On the ramp the minimum was minus 31 degrees. Not the first indication of a reversed temperature gradient. We have had a calm day, as is usual with a low temperature. It was very beautiful out of doors this morning. As the crescent moon was sinking in the west, Erebus showed a heavy vapour cloud, showing that the quantity is affected by temperature rather than pressure. I am glad to have had a good run on ski. The Cape Crozier party are preparing for departure, and heads have been put together to provide as much comfort as the strenuous circumstances will permit. I came across a hint as to the value of a double tent in Sverdrup's book, New Land, and Petty Officer Evans has made a lining for one of the tents. It is secured on the inner side of the poles, and provides an air-space inside the tent. I think it is going to be a great success, and that it will go far to obviate the necessity of considering the question of snow-huts, though we shall continue our efforts in this direction also. Another new departure is the decision to carry eiderdown sleeping-bags inside the reindeer ones. With such an arrangement the early part of the journey is bound to be comfortable, but when the bags get iced difficulties are pretty certain to arise. Day has been devoting his energies to the creation of a blubber stove, much assisted, of course, by the experience gained at Hut Point. The blubber is placed in an annular vessel, A. The oil from it passes through a pipe, B, and spreads out on the surface of a plate, C, with a containing flange. D, D are raised points which serve as heat conductors. E, E is a tin chimney, for flame, with air holes at its base. To start the stove, the plate C must be warmed with spirit-lamp or primus, but when the blubber oil is well alight, its heat is quite sufficient to melt the blubber in A, and keep up the oil supply. The heat gradually rises until the oil issues from B in a vaporised condition, when, of course, the heat given off by the stove is intense. This stove was got going this morning in five minutes in the outer temperature, with the blubber hard frozen. It will make a great difference to the Crozier party if they can manage to build a hut, and the experience gained will be everything for the Western Party in the summer. With a satisfactory blubber stove, it would never be necessary to carry fuel on a coast journey, and we shall deserve well of posterity if we can perfect one. A crozier journey is to be made to serve a good many trial ends. As I have already mentioned, each man is to go on a different food scale, with a view to determining the desirable proportion of fats and carbohydrates. Wilson is also to try the effect of a double windproof suit instead of extra woollen clothing. If two suits of windproof will keep one as warm in the spring as a single suit does in the summer, it is evident that we can face the summit of Victoria Land with a very slight increase of weight. I think the new crampons, which will also be tried on this journey, are going to be a great success. We have returned to the last discovery type, with improvements. The magnalium sole plates of our own crampons are retained, but shod with half-inch steel spikes. These plates are riveted through canvas to an inner leather sole, and the canvas is brought up on all sides to form a covering to the finesco of which it is laced. They are less than half the weight of an ordinary ski-boot, 
go on very easily, and secure very neatly. Midwinter day, the turn of the season, is very close. It will be good to have light for the more active preparations for the coming year. Wednesday, June the 21st. The temperature low again, falling to minus 36 degrees. A curious hazy look in the sky. Very little wind. The cold is bringing some minor troubles to the clockwork instruments in the open, and with the acetylene gas plant. No insuperable difficulties. Went for a ski run round the bergs. Found it very dark and uninteresting. The temperature remained low during night, and Taylor reported a very fine display of aurora. Thursday, June the 22nd, midwinter. The sun reached its maximum depression at about 2.30pm on the 22nd, Greenwich Mean Time. This is 2.30am on the 23rd, according to the local time of the 180th meridian which we are keeping. Dinner tonight is therefore the meal which is nearest the sun's critical change of course, and has been observed with all the festivity customary at Christmas at home. At tea we broached an enormous buzzard cake, with much gratitude to its provider, Cherry Garrard. In preparation for the evening, our Union Jacks and sledge flags were hung about the large table, which itself was laid with glass and a plentiful supply of champagne bottles, instead of the customary mugs and enamel lime-juice jugs. At seven o'clock we sat down to an extravagant bill of fare, as compared with our usual simple diet, beginning on seal soup, by common consent the best decoction that our cook produces. We went on to roast beef with Yorkshire pudding, fried potatoes and Brussels sprouts then followed a flaming plum pudding and excellent mince pies, and thereafter a dainty savoury of anchovy and cod's row. A wondrous attractive meal, even in so far as judged by our simple lights, but with its garnishments a positive feast, for with all the table was strewn with dishes of burnt almonds, crystallised fruits, chocolates, and such toothsome kickshaws, whilst the unstinted supply of champagne which accompanied the courses was succeeded by a noble array of liqueur bottles, from which choice could be made in the drinking of toasts. I screwed myself up to a little speech, which drew attention to the nature of the celebration as a halfway mark not only in our winter, but in the plans of the expedition as originally published. I fear there are some who don't realise how rapidly time passes, and who have barely begun work, which by this time ought to be in full swing. We have come through a summer season and half a winter, and had before us half a winter and a second summer. We ought to know how we stood in every respect. We did know how we stood in regard to stores and transport, and I especially thanked the officer in charge of stores and the custodians of the animals. I said that as regards the future, chance must play a part, but that experience showed me that it would have been impossible to have chosen people more fitted to support me in the enterprise to the south than those who were to start in that direction in the spring. I thanked them all for having put their shoulders to the wheel and given me this confidence. We drank to the success of the expedition. Then everyone was called on to speak, starting on my left and working round the table. The result was very characteristic of the various individuals. One seemed to know so well the style of utterance to which each would commit himself. Needless to say, all were entirely modest and brief. Unexpectedly, all had exceedingly kind things to say of me. In fact, I was obliged to request the omission of compliments at an early stage. Nevertheless, it was gratifying to have a really genuine recognition of my attitude towards the scientific workers of the expedition, and I felt very warmly towards all these kind, good fellows for expressing it. 
if good will and happy fellowship count towards success very surely we shall deserve to succeed it was a matter for comment much applauded that there had not been a single disagreement between any two members of our party from the beginning by the end of dinner a very cheerful spirit prevailed and the room was cleared for ponting and his lantern whilst the gramophone gave forth its most lively airs when the table was up-ended its legs removed and the chairs arranged in rows we had quite a roomy lecture-hall ponting had cleverly chosen this opportunity to display a series of slides made from his own local negatives i have never so fully realised his work as on seeing these beautiful pictures they so easily outclass anything of their kind previously taken in these regions our audience cheered vociferously after this show the table was restored for snapdragon and a brew of milk punch was prepared in which we drank the health of campbell's party and of our good friends in the terranova then the table was again removed and a set of lancers formed by this time the effect of stimulating liquid refreshment on men so long accustomed to a simple life became apparent our biologist had retired to bed the silent soldier bubbled with humour and insisted on dancing with anton evans petty officer was imparting confidences in heavy whispers pat keon had grown intensely irish and desirous of political argument whilst clissold sat with a constant expansive smile and punctuated the babble of conversation with an occasional whoop of delight or disjointed witticism other bright-eyed individuals merely reached the capacity to enjoy that which under ordinary circumstances might have passed without evoking a smile in the midst of the revelry bowers suddenly appeared followed by some satellites bearing an enormous christmas tree whose branches bore flaming candles gaudy crackers and little presents for all the presents i learnt had been prepared with kindly thought by miss super mrs wilson's sister and the tree had been made by bowers of pieces of stick and string with coloured paper to clothe its branches the whole erection was remarkably creditable and the distribution of the presents caused much amusement whilst revelry was the order of the day within our hut the elements without seemed desirous of celebrating the occasion with equal emphasis and greater decorum the eastern sky was massed with swaying auroral light the most vivid and beautiful display that i had ever seen fold on fold the arches and curtains of vibrating luminosity rose and spread across the sky to slowly fade and yet again spring to glowing life the brighter light seemed to flow now to mass itself in wreathing folds in one quarter from which lustrous streamers shot upward and anon to run in waves through the system of some dimmer figure as if to infuse new life within it it is impossible to witness such a beautiful phenomenon without a sense of awe and yet this sentiment is not inspired by its brilliancy but rather by its delicacy in light and colour its transparency and above all by its tremulous evanescence of form there is no glittering splendour to dazzle the eye as has been too often described rather the appeal is to the imagination by the suggestion of something wholly spiritual something instinct with a fluttering ethereal life serenely confident yet restlessly mobile one wonders why history does not tell us of aurora worshippers so easily could the phenomenon be considered the manifestation of god or demon to the little silent group which stood at gaze before such enchantment it seemed profane to return to the mental and physical atmosphere of our house finally when i stepped within 
I was glad to find that there had been a general movement bedwards, and in the next half-hour the last of the roisterers had succumbed to slumber. Thus, except for a few bad heads in the morning, ended the high festival of midwinter. There is little to be said for the artificial uplifting of animal spirits, yet few could take exception to so rare an outburst in the long run of quiet days. After all, we celebrated the birth of a season which, for weal or woe, must be numbered amongst the greatest in our lives. End of chapter 11, part 2